are you doing? Remember your health. Hello, welcome. This is the AJPH podcast. This month, we will be discussing the role of work, work in public health, work in population health research. Work, whether we have one or not, is very central to our lives, right? So if consequential public health goes after the most important health determinants, work should play a very important role in our activity. But let's face it, that's not the case. Work remains very marginal in public health and in population health research. So why is it so? This is what I wanted to discuss with my guest in this podcast. We will try to answer this question, a very difficult question, step by step. First, what is work and how is it evolving recently? Second, is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, able to control working conditions? Third, can labor unions define how much risk is acceptable at work? Fourth, do the new forms of labor organizations that are emerging recently represent new lines of work protection? Finally, I wanted to discuss solutions, solutions that can be implemented in research and education at OSHA and in what could be the future shape of uh, labor unions. If there is one message that comes out of this exploration is that the current state of work protection in this country should be a source of major concerns for everyone in public health. But there's also a second part to the message which says that there is a lot going on and what's going on offers perspectives about ways to improve the situation. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor-in-chief of the journal, and this is February 5th, 2018. So let's call Emily Ahonen. She's an assistant professor at the Indiana University School of Public Health. Where are you, Emily? Well, I'm in my office on the campus of Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, in Indianapolis. <laughs> and how's the weather? Well, uh, it's cold. <laughs> it's a typical Midwestern uh, winter weather. It's blustery and a little snowy. So, Emily, is work respected as it should be in public health and in uh, population health research? I would say that it's not. And that has that has been baffling to me for a long time, really, because I would say that um, it's a fundamental piece of the puzzle. And, you know, that's because of the multiple ways that work interacts with health, whether it's just through the time we spend there or the physical and psychological and cognitive demands, exposure to hazards, the kind of material and social resources we derive from work. And, you know, people know this intuitively if they just think about their own lives. But by and large, I would say that that, that intuition has been left out of U.S. studies of health inequities. But, I mean, the way you describe it, what would think, uh, isn't work too complex to be measured uh, in a simple way and integrated in public health research? Well, I mean, I guess... It is complex, and I, I tend to be interested in, in complex ideas. But in, at least in terms of health inequity, taking the simplest formulation of work has happened, but it's not a very fruitful perspective to take in research. You know, if we just say, is someone working for pay, yes or no? Or maybe what industry or occupation do people work in, which is a simple formulation of work, then we leave out the richness of people's experience of work and population groups' experiences of work, which is really much more explanatory. Um, we think about employment quality and work quality, work as a shaper of other determinants of health, work as a complex resource. 
Okay, work is essential to our health, but the nature of work has been evolving fast lately. So I'm reaching out now to Michael Wright, who is Director of Health, Safety and Environment for the United Steel Worker, a labor union. And here is his perspective on the evolving nature of work. The economy has been changing at, a, at, a, at an accelerating rate. Um, manufacturing jobs have steadily declined in the last three decades. The number of service sector jobs have risen. Um, some of this is, is because of unfair trade, but a lot of it is because of greater productivity. Management out, uh, the output from manufacturing plants is actually greater than it was um, 30 years ago, but jobs have been lost and wages have been stagnant. A lot of Americans have been forced to trade stable long-term jobs for uh, precarious short-term jobs. We now use the term the gig economy. All that's changed in the economy, and we think that I think, anyway, that the technological change um, is going to bring changes to the workforce that are even greater. If you look, for example, a lot of the things we make now are metal and plastics in foundries and forges and stamping and molding operations can be made by three-dimensional printers. Uh, we saw one of, our, one, of our, one, of our, one of our vice presidents toured a tire plant recently uh, where they had a pilot project to make tires by three-dimensional printing. Uh, we can also make simple artificial organs by three-dimensional printing. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the, the, the work of making things, the work of making, um, making ideas and intellectual work is also changing rapidly as artificial intelligence comes into the, comes into the picture. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, um, when I was when I was in Utah about a year ago, I saw um, the first prototype self-driving long-haul trucks were on the were on the road. They still had humans, but the humans were sort of monitoring the equipment. And at some point, um, in long-haul trucking, in um, in things like mining equipment, in a lot of heavy equipment, uh, which are all heavily computerized now, uh, we may do away with human operators altogether. What that means for the workforce is um, is still to be determined, but but it's a system that, unless we can manage it, is going to lead to probably a lot of economic misery for a lot of people. So work is evolving, and this transformation creates new hazards. OSHA is the federal institution which mission is to regulate work to protect health and control risk. Let's talk now with Adam Finkel. He's a professor of environmental health science at Michigan University. Adam? Yes, Dr. Moravi, how are you? Fine, and you? Where are you? Good. Uh, I'm at my home office in uh, near Princeton, New Jersey. In New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. You've been uh, for a long time working for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the OSHA. Can you tell us what uh, was your activity there? Sure. Although it's been a while since I left. I left in 2005 and have been working in academia in the same uh, area ever since. But for 12 years, I was a senior executive. There, I came in in the uh, second half of the Bill Clinton administration and was director of the health regulatory programs uh, for the agency for about four years in Washington. And then right before the uh, 2000 election, I moved to Denver, uh, where I became the regional administrator in charge of all the operations in the basically the Rocky Mountain part of the country. Mm -hmm. So you've been uh, following the, the activity of OSHA for for many years. It was created in 1971, right, by Nixon? Uh, correct. Same year as EPA, Environmental Protection yes. Agency. So, so what was the motivation behind? It was a Republican government. Uh, of course, I wasn't. I was alive, but not, not following it closely uh, almost 50 years ago. But my understanding is that at the same time as uh, Nixon and others were realizing that we needed a, an agency to protect uh, the general environment that the uh, 
worker fatality and injury rates uh, had been coming down in the first half of the century, but not nearly uh, quickly enough. So there were about uh, 15 to 20,000 accidental deaths every year at that time uh, in the workplace, and uh, chemical exposures were uh, much higher than they are uh, now many years later. Uh, And so there was a bipartisan uh, agreement that we needed uh, within the Labor Department there to be an agency to do inspection and enforcement of worker protection rules. And so are we doing better now, uh, 50 years later? We are, but it's very controversial how much of the improvement that we've seen, uh, particularly in the worker uh, fatality rates, which have gone down from about 15,000 a year to about uh, 5,000 a year with a more than a doubling of the workforce during that time, uh, how much of that improvement is really due to the activities of OSHA and how much of it is due to uh, general improvements in technology and particularly the deindustrialization uh, of a lot of the economy and the moving of uh, factory jobs into service jobs. Nice. And, uh, you know, I noticed that uh, since 1971, most Secretary of Labor have been Republican. So what's different about the current one, Alexander Acosta? Well, of course, he's the secretary of the Labor Department at the cabinet level. OSHA doesn't have an assistant secretary running that agency yet, which is unprecedented now, uh, 12 to 13 months into the administration. There's a nominee, uh, a man who's been working at Federal Express for for a long time, but he has not been confirmed yet. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I served part of my time under uh, George W. Bush and... There have been differences in the approach over these many years, but the pendulum hasn't swung that far. There was a period in the Reagan years early on when there was a head of OSHA who was fairly hostile to the the mission. But I think since then, we've seen um, periods of more and less activity. Uh, Now we're in a period that's a year old of of virtual inactivity and uh, lots of... uh, discussions and preliminary steps to reverse many of the achievements of the last uh, 10 or 20 years. So are, are there already, you know, actions that have been taken and uh, in some way irreversibly that uh, affect OSHA's activity as of now? A few. Again, it's under the the context of uh, not having a head of the agency and and the administration is not that focused on on OSHA to the extent it's been focused on uh, rolling back and and, uh, reversing some EPA rules. Uh, But there have been a couple of major steps to undo what was done in the previous administration. There was a regulation that was finalized that would have required employers to maintain their injury logs in their workplaces for for five years instead of for six months, and that was quickly undone so that OSHA now cannot go in and uh, uh, penalize employers for falsifying uh, their logs that are more than six months old because they don't have to keep them. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the chemicals area, which is where I've uh, spent most of my time, uh, it took almost 40 years for OSHA to come up with a rule to protect workers against uh, beryllium disease. And although that rule is in place, there is now a new rule being proposed to exempt construction workers and shipyard workers from major portions of that rule. So what does beryllium? Well, it causes a unique uh, and very grave lung disease called chronic beryllium disease. And it's present uh, in small concentrations in a lot of different industries, uh, particularly uh, uh, aerospace and computers and high-tech industries. And... uh, you know, the disease uh, is named after the agent. So there's there's no question if someone's diagnosed with this particular uh, progressive and, and grave disease where it came from. And unfortunately, after all this time uh, to get this rule in place and to lower the exposure limit, uh, it now may not be enforced fully in construction and shipyards, which are two of the major places where exposures occur. I see. And Adam, uh, during the the eight years of the previous administration, did we see major changes in, in OSHA activity? And There was some progress made. There was a very committed group of people who tried uh, heroically to uh, accelerate things, but it was very difficult with a very hostile uh, Republican Congress during most of that 
time. So I think one one small bit of good news is it, it took most of the eight years uh, to get a modernized rule to protect uh, hundreds of thousands of workers from silica exposure, silicosis, and lung cancer on the job. And the new administration tried to uh, support a uh, lawsuit against that rule. And just last month, it was uh, very resoundingly uh, defeated in the D.C. Circuit. So that rule will will go into effect as planned, is in effect, and will not be challenged in court. I see. And why is it that uh, people who, who are working unions or, you know, uh, organized workers, etc., they, they tend to always say, well, we can't wait for OSHA. Well, of course, there are fewer and fewer of those workers. The the unionization rate has gone way down over the last 50 years to under 10 percent, I think. And uh, but I think uh, many workers and many employers, uh, the, the the better employers have realized that, uh, unfortunately, the the uh, staffing and the budget of OSHA and the penalties they're allowed to uh, assess by statute are simply not uh, robust and, and high enough to uh, really cause uh broad compliance across the spectrum. So the employers uh, who want to do the right thing uh, have, I think, long since left OSHA behind and are setting their own uh, voluntary limits and having their own uh, worker participation committees uh, to really uh, get the job done well. Uh, that's very and it's a shame because we, you know, we need uh, a stronger and a bigger agency. I was just thinking uh, this morning, the president's asked for $25 billion to uh, protect us from, uh, immigration uh, to our south. And uh, if that request is granted, that will be more money in one year than, than we've spent on worker protection in the entire 50 years of OSHA. Mike Wright confirms that uh, the current lack of leadership at OSHA is a major concern for labor unions too. And tell me, Mike, uh, do you feel a difference between the OSHA uh, as it is run now, I mean, since last year under the new administration, and how it was run in the previous years? I, the, the difference is, um, is that I think OSHA is, is disorganized at the top at this point, and that's quite natural because although there's been, been a nominee for Assistant Secretary for OSHA, uh, there have been no Senate confirmation hearings yet. So the top leadership is not really in place. Uh, so we're kind of waiting for that shoe to fall to see where they'll come down. They have made some proposals and made some changes, which we think uh, are not helpful, which hurt workers. Uh, they've delayed some OSHA standards. They've um, talked about rolling back. They've, they've actually, for a very important standard for beryllium, in the shipyard and construction industries, they have um, proposed to take a lot of what we think are important provisions out of that standard. So we're uh, we're spending a lot of time trying to uh, to fight back against those proposals. I see. So OSHA is an important agency, but it could be stronger and it needs to be better funded. Now, let's see with Mike Wright. What is the role of labor union in protecting workers' health? We're, um, we're called the United Steelworkers. Our actual name is much longer. But we represent people in a lot of different sectors of the economy. We represent, of course, people who work in the steel industry, but also people who work in the metals industry generally. Um, we have, we, we, uh, we represent most of the, um, unionized paper workers, uh, people who make rubber and tires. Uh, we represent the workers who refine about 75% of the nation's gasoline. Uh, we have, we're probably the largest union in the chemical industry. Uh, and we, we have a majority, we, uh, we're the largest union representing, um, miners in what's confusingly called the metal and non-metal mining sector, which, is basically everything but coal. So we also have a significant number of healthcare workers, uh, close to 50,000. So we're, 
we're a pretty broad union. Our our job in my department is to uh, is is to look after health, safety, and environmental issues, and that ranges from um, from doing workplace investigations, uh, either of hazards or sadly of serious accidents and fatalities. Uh, we do um, a lot of work on trying to get better OSHA standards, like the standard for silica that we achieved last year. Uh, we, um, or I'm sorry, in 2016, we um, we these days are spending a lot of time defending the existing OSHA standards from the current administration. Uh, we do work on environmental issues as well, uh, and I think the thing that we like doing the best, and that we uh, we would prefer to always do, is good basic member safety and health education, not only in uh, in the technical issues of things like how do you protect yourself from infectious disease in a hospital setting, how do you protect yourself from molten metal um, in a steel plant, but also how do you how do you get fundamental change in the workplace? How do you um, how do you convince your employer to spend money to protect your life your life and the life of your coworkers? That's what mm-hmm. That's what we. Uh, that's where I think the real payoff comes in the work we do. Clearly, labor unions could play a more important role on the workplace, but uh, their membership is dwindling, and many observers consider that uh, the decline of labor union is uh, an important determinant in the epidemic of despair that has been affecting the American heartland and that we've been covering in the October 2018 issue of uh, AJPH. So let's look at this with Mike. In 1953, that was 65 years ago, about 40% of the private sector workers belonged to unions. So was this a high level of unionization compared to other countries? It's not high compared to many European countries. Uh, in the Nordic countries, for example, um, unionization rates among people who who are eligible are are above ninety percent. Uh, mm-hmm. Unionization is higher in Canada. It's higher in um, it's higher in the United Kingdom. Uh, it's um, higher in Germany, and all of those are countries with vibrant economies. So um, the the kind of uh, thing that that we hear from the right wing all the time that uh, that unions hurt the economy simply isn't true for those countries. And we don't think it would be true for this country. So we started with a not very high level, and now we are, in 2016, there were about 6% of the private sector workers who were unionized. Is this very low compared to other countries? or? Yeah, that's, that's very low compared to other countries. And, and, and what does it mean for the U.S. to have only 6% of its workforce well, to be unionized. Well, well, unions have have traditionally been the the, the organizations which have uh, tried to make life better for working people. Uh, there are organizations that uh, work on a lot of different social issues. Um, there are there there are organizations that work on the environment. There are organizations that uh, try to protect the rights of women. There are organizations that protect the rights of LGBT uh, people and communities. Um, unions have been seen as as the the, the organizations which uh, try to make life better for workers, try to make the employment relationship one that really supports a living wage and a decent retirement and safety and health on the job. And having union rates of only six point four percent mean that uh, that we can't do that job nearly as effectively as we could if we had a higher membership. Did workers desert uh, unions, or what happened? I think a couple things happened. One is that um, that unions were were when they in the in the late forties and fifties and up up into the sixties, the kind of economy we had was one where many people would go to work for a particular employer, and would pretty much spend their working life there. Uh, and now uh, we're in what people have called the gig economy, where you know there are some people who will spend many years working for the same employer, but a lot of people move from employer to employer, uh, and that's that's made it tough to create stable unions. But the biggest problem, I think, is that it is extraordinarily hard to, to organize a union in a workplace now. 
There's just massive employer opposition to it. And the, the, uh, the rules are really stacked against unions. For example, companies can, uh, can um, once you petition for a union election, companies have all kinds of ways, employers have all kinds of ways to try to, 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 try to delay that election, during which time uh, they will often single out the union organizers and, and either make their lives miserable or, in a lot of cases, uh, remove them from the picture altogether by finding a pretext to fire them. Now, that's illegal. But the problem is that by the time you win a case getting your job back, uh, it may take a year or more through the National Labor Relations Board and through the courts. During that time, all of your coworkers will see, well, you know, Joe stood up, Joe tried to organize a union, and he was fired. So I'm not going to make the same mistake. Um, and, and once you get your job back, there's no punishment of the employer. Uh, there's the, the only thing the employer is responsible for who committed this, this violation of federal law is back wages um, minus anything that the, that the dismissed worker managed to earn during the time he or she was off the job and um, was off that job. And that's really fundamentally unfair. It, gives, it, it means that in a, in a large proportion of union organizing campaigns, uh, the employer commits labor law violations. Uh, fires people unjustly, um, and often they win their jobs back. But but uh, but it's only after the campaign's over. So it's. But would um, you say this is this very is hard a to new? Would you say this is a new phenomenon <clears throat> that uh, it didn't exist in the fifties, sixties, seventies? It didn't exist to the to the extent it does now. People, the the, um, the the employer community that resists unions has become much more sophisticated, and there are firms which. Um, which specialize in in uh, in what they call union avoidance, in working for employers uh, for a pretty hefty fee to try to bring all of the tools uh, to bear to deny workers the right to organize, and mm-hmm. they're often successful. We 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 still win some we we still win some organizing campaigns, uh, but um, but it's uh, but it's very difficult. And one of the mm-hmm. things about about unions being the organizations which fight for worker rights and worker safety, um, we're, we're kind of doing it with one hand behind our backs because if, if you look at, at the organizations that, that are there to protect the environment, to protect women's rights, uh, to, uh, to protect the rights of African Americans and Hispanics, um, they're organizations that you can just join. You can't just join a union. Uh, the only way you get into a union is by um, is by organizing one in your workplace, by going to work for an for an employer who happens to be unionized, or in some cases by joining one of the apprenticeship programs run by the building trades. And uh, so we we sometimes mm-hmm. joke that we are the only the only organization that lets its adversaries pick its members. But that's <laughs> that's, that's that's kind of the way it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's not a real joke. OSHA is a slow-acting agency, and unions have been losing ground. But new forms of health protection on the workplace are emerging locally, and we will discuss these with Celeste Monforton. She is a lecturer in public health at Texas State University. Hello, Celeste. Hello, Alfredo. So wonderful to hear your voice. Absolutely. Where are you now? I am in Austin, Texas. Wow. And and what are you doing in Austin, Texas? Well, it's actually a great place to bicycle here in Central Texas, and my husband loves to do that, so that's how I landed here in Austin, Texas, and I teach at Texas State University. Celeste, we are here to discuss uh, the issue of uh, work and health, and and what you seem to be writing in your piece in the journal this month is that uh, workers have to fight for their health. They have to agitate, organize, use their collective power 
or nothing happens. Is this uh, a right uh, translation of your thought? Absolutely. Workers can't just rely on the government to come in and help them. They have to uh, compel and use all of the power that they have collectively to, to force action by the government. So can you give me some examples of uh, what you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the best and the vision that I have is when we think about coal miners in Appalachia who were dying, you know, three or 400 a year and developing black lung disease. And no one believed them that black lung was actually a disease. Um, you know, they had to mobilize at the local level. And then, you know, some took buses and protests and sat down on Capitol Hill until there was uh, legislation that was passed. Um, and then they continued to that? ensure that. So that would have been 1968. And there had been a major uh, coal dust explosion in Farmington, West Virginia, and 178 miners were killed. And it really was the the straw that broke the camel's back for coal miners. And so what did they get? So the most comprehensive worker health and safety law in the U.S. was passed, and that was the Coal Mine Health and Safety Act. And you'll notice that it's health before safety um, because the miners felt so strongly about the disease that, that they were suffering, their fathers, uncles, grandfathers, suffering from black lung disease, um, a very powerful law that requires four underground inspections every year, uh, reductions in the amount of coal dust that is allowable in mines, rights for miners to accompany inspectors. Uh, There were provisions in there to set up a trust fund so that miners' health care costs and Benefits would be paid if they became disabled. So all of those things didn't magically become part of the legislation. Um, There were coal miners and leaders who demanded those kind of Mm -hmm. protections. And certainly the United Mine Workers were a key player in ensuring that Mm -hmm. that happened and had allies on Capitol Hill. And the same, um, not as dramatic, but the same circumstances led to the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act in 1970. So so that the, the coal miners fight was before the OSHA was created? Yes, one, one year ahead of time. And, and certainly, you know, leading up to the uh, passage of the Occupational Health and Safety Act, there was uh, at least a 10-year campaign on the ground with chemical workers in particular, um, auto workers, steel workers, who were very concerned about chemical hazards on the job. And we have to think about this um, in the 1960s when there was very strong social movements going on and people very concerned about contaminants and um, environmental Hazards and the worker movement was moving in parallel to that environmental movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have also more recent examples? Because uh, coal miners are not really part of the movement today, or are they? Right. No, they aren't. There are very few. You know, the last union mine in Kentucky closed a couple of years ago. So yes, definitely more recent examples. And we see that particularly throughout OSHA's history, that whenever there was a major health standard that was adopted by the agency, it often was because of a petition and that, uh, you know, forcing the agency to take action. So we had that in the early years of OSHA in the early 1970s with textile workers who demanded um, a a regulation on cotton dust. We saw that in the 1980s when healthcare workers demanded protections from bloodborne pathogens. 
Um, most recently for the carcinogen beryllium, uh, the United Steelworkers had to petition OSHA for a standard. So there are many examples in OSHA's history where it was organized labor that made the case and filed legal petitions to compel the agency to act. But so let me understand something, because a, um, you, you use several times the same expression in, in your piece. You say uh, workers cannot wait for OSHA. So uh, in this case, it seems that OSHA is instrumental at some point uh, to uh, uh, bring satisfaction to the workers' demand. So can you explain what that kind of relationship with OSHA? Yeah, so when we think about OSHA and we think about those successes that I mentioned, they're certainly significant, but they you can count them on your hands. You know, the number of chemical hazards and standards that OSHA has adopted, the process for doing that, not only you know, requiring a petition from workers to compel the agency to act, but then the process itself takes years. You know, on, on average, it takes seven years for OSHA to do a standard. So, you know, all the different hazards that workers face, it would take, you know, hundreds of years for them to address those hazards. So workers cannot just and have not just relied on OSHA for protections. Um, for organized workers, um, workers in labor unions um, at the local level, they may uh, make demands in their contract for protections. But what we've been seeing more and more are workers not uh, relying on the federal government, on federal OSHA to take action, but doing things at their state and local level. So I provide an example in the paper um, of uh, workers in the state of Texas, in Dallas in particular, who were very concerned about heat stress and workers not having water and shade and an opportunity to take a rest break. Um, and there was a young man who died on the job. And workers very quickly mobilized, including this young man's father, and made a demand of the city council in Dallas that construction workers have to be provided shade, water, and rest. And that is not a regulation that OSHA has. Um, just last week, just last week, hotel housekeepers, after a six-year campaign in California, um, secured a new regulation that is going to protect them from the types of hazards that cause back injuries and other musculoskeletal injuries. And I think there were 150 hotel housekeepers over this campaign that testified at hearings across the state to talk about the toll that their work has on their body, lifting mattresses that weigh, you know, 80, 100 pounds, um, the difficulty that they have in, in, all the um, fixtures in these fancy bathrooms at the hotels that we go to, you know, cleaning all that granite and showers, and um, they don't have the proper tools that they need. These these hotel housekeepers that we're talking about, like the mops that they use, have a little short handle, so they basically have to be hunched over to be cleaning the floor and the tub, and simple something as simple as having a longer handled tool. Um, could make such a difference to them. The carts that they push in the hallways over the carpeting that don't have the kind of wheels that you would need to move over carpeting. So just those types of hazards that can make, um, you know, the work for these individuals, uh, many of whom are immigrant workers, um, has a, a wear and tear on their body. And so after their efforts and their campaign, um, the state of California last week adopted this new rule that's going to require hotels to have uh, ergonomic injury prevention programs. And there is no such regulation at the federal level. And I can't an anticipate in, in, you know, the next two decades for anything like that to be secured for workers nationwide using the OSHA system. 
And how would you call these new forms of organization? Yeah, so I would say these are unions with a small U. You know, when we think about unions, we think about workers coming together for collective activity, for a common cause and for common good. And that is occurring in community groups, um, occurring in some locations where they have worker centers, um, where they come together, discuss, you know, the problems that they're facing um, and and make a decision about where they want to focus their efforts. So, like I said, I call it union with a small U um, because there have been so many attacks and um, changes in laws that make it exceedingly difficult for workers to um, to secure a union in the traditional sense when we think about organizing um, for a collective bargaining agreement. So this is a different model for workers to just use their voice and use whatever power that they have to compel changes. The way my interviewees describe the obstacles that need to be overcome, if one wants to prevent work from being a major health risk, is sometimes gloomy. I, I totally agree. But there's hope. There are solutions. And let's review them now. I first asked Emily Ahonen, how could research on work and health become more effective? We can start by taking any problem that we're interested in, any health equity problem, and think about what role work might play in that issue. And then we can start from next with an explicit use of the social ecological model in the ways that we formulate our research and the ways in which we talk to others about our research. So I guess I would say start with the simple and then in any given study, think about the ways in which you could add a little bit more nuance to your variables, both of work and perhaps of whatever outcome you're looking at. Great. So give me an example, uh, a study in which this has been done. Well, um, I can talk about a study that, that one of my co-authors on this paper performed where she and her co-authors were looking at um, the influence of characteristics of people's work on mortality rates. Um, and they were, this was uh, looking at racially based mortality rates and socioeconomic position mortality rates, considering all of those things. But when they were able to consider aspects of work, and they were looking at how complex people's work is, because complex work is health protective, it's good for people. They were able to explain 30% more of the mortality differential between African American groups and white groups in the study. And so that's an example of where finding a way to include something about work beyond industry and occupation, but rather what is people's experience of work like? was explanatory, and then it provides another place to think about intervening as well. Another domain where improvement uh, is needed and possible is education and training. And I've addressed this issue with uh, Paul Lansburgis. He's an associate professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health Science at Downstate School of Public Health in Brooklyn. In your editorial, yes. you, you are describing a program, a curriculum, uh, that has been ongoing since uh, 2011, and it's called yes. the Work and Health Equity Curriculum. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Uh, yes, in 2011, NIOSH held a major conference on occupational health inequities. This led to major review papers, which were published. We, we cite those in the editorial. And the development of this six-hour work and health equity curriculum for undergraduate and graduate public health students. It's available for free download. The, the link for the download is in the editorial. Uh, the curriculum... Uh, which I hope people will use, talks about how 
unequal power in the workplace, uh, vulnerable groups like uh, black, Hispanic, or Asian workers, foreign-born workers, low-wage workers, women, how unequal power in the workplace for them leads to health inequities in various ways. But then the curriculum also describes these various campaigns that I just mentioned before, uh, what people are doing to improve working conditions, trying to reduce the inequities. So the, the curriculum is detailed and gets into good examples from the research on how the problem develops and then these various efforts to do something about it. So is it a program for people who want to uh, intervene on the workplace or around work issue or, or for people who are researchers? Uh, I think both. Uh, there, there's research data presented and uh, information about advocacy efforts. So I think it's certainly something that students would be interested in, both for their public health research and public health advocacy interests, as well as for faculty to become involved in, in evaluation for uh, these campaigns. So the, the program hmm. has existed now for uh, seven to eight years. Uh, do we have a, an idea how many students have taken it? Well, the curriculum is more recent. That's only been uh, distributed for the last year or so. So we know various schools, uh, including our school, UCLA and others, that are using this curriculum. Uh, I don't have the latest count on how many are using it, but a growing number, I believe, are. Mm -hmm. and, and who are you targeting? What, 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 what type of students or what types of schools or what, what's the sure. objective? It, 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 yes, any schools or programs in public health. Uh, it doesn't have to be occupational health programs, but but any schools and programs, because these issues cover a range of topics within public health. It touches on community-based work and epidemiology and occupational and environmental health. So th this basic curriculum is something that can be used across disciplines in schools and programs of public health. Another domain where more could be done, and it's a domain of great interest uh, for the journal, uh, is interventions. And I've asked uh, Emily's opinion about that. Um, in terms of what we could do intervention-wise, because work is fundamentally about organizations and about structures and a place where structural policies come to be real... I think that we can work towards thinking about how to make work better for everybody. And when we do that, we not only address groups of people who may be experiencing health inequity related to work and what work gets us in life, but we also improve health status for everyone when we do that. If we think about a person's experience as it relates to health and health equity as what work provides or does not, and then what the social safety net can provide if work does not provide it, then I think we're at the level of real influence and real change. But it, it seems to me that what you're saying involves a, an active participation of the workers themselves or the employees. I, I fully believe that. Now let's ask... Adam Finkel, how would a dream OSHA look like? And so, uh, Adam, you, you have this experience. Imagine that uh, we have a future administration which uh, is very positively inclined towards OSHA. Uh, how could OSHA be improved? What should this administration do? I would have to start with uh, the bottom line of, of, of budget and, and staffing. I think these are multi-billion dollar decisions being made for the whole country, for the, the workforce and the economy. And I'm a scientist, and I think it's a shame that we don't spend even a tenth of a percent on getting the analysis and the, uh, the, the design of these regulations. We don't put uh, nearly enough into making sure we, we do it right. Uh, we're losing money and losing lives by not having these rules uh, crafted 
uh, properly, and that takes study and research and time and effort, and uh, we just don't have the uh, the people or the budget uh, to keep up with uh, the old problems, let alone uh, the new ones. But beyond that, there's lots that could be done, uh, not just to sit in Washington and write rules and send people out to enforce them, but to involve uh, employers and the citizenry more than they have been in uh, evangelizing for voluntary compliance, in diffusing uh, technologies that already are doing a good job to protect people outside the workforce, uh, but are not being uh, required inside. A good example being these cameras that we now have uh, by rule going into all passenger cars so that people will see what's behind them and not run over people uh, when they're backing up. But the uh, the back over fatality rate is much higher in the workplace than it is in the on the highways, and and yet we don't require industrial trucks to have these uh, inexpensive cameras uh, that are already uh, being used for the general public. So this new uh, industrial economy, uh, with its gig jobs, its uh, greater workers' mobility, will require unions with the capital U, to adapt to the new situation. So, Mike, what are the options? Uh, we, may, we, we may need a, a way to find, um, to, to create unions or to create working class organizations which follow a worker as he or she, follow an employee as he or she moves from one job to another. So if you work in this job currently, you may be a member of this union. If you work the next place you work a year later, there may be no union at all. And the next place you work, there may be a different union. So maybe what we need to do is to create organizations that, that, that represent people throughout their working life. Uh, we also, I think, some of it can be done legislatively. For example, uh, a lot of European countries have created works councils in different, different employment settings, uh, which, are, um, which, which are representative organizations of workers in, in that enterprise established by law. Um, they're not they're not exactly unions, but in Europe they provide a lot of the functions that Europe's that that uh, that, that unions provide. So mm -hmm. they're all they're all there are a lot of solutions. Uh, it will just take um, really understanding what solution works best, and then the political will to make it happen. Political will. Mm. Should we be pessimistic about this, Celeste? You know, anyone who's involved in any social movements, we can't be pessimistic. We always have to be thinking about how you fight. And that's the energy you get from, from inside your soul and working together with like-minded people. That's it. Thanks for listening. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. The music prepared by Francis Jacob features Kofo the Wonderman, a master drummer from Nigeria. And you can listen to more podcasts, including podcasts in uh, Chinese and Spanish, on our website at ajph.org. Or you can subscribe to this podcast on your phone or your tablet app.